Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, beginning in verse 1. We go along in the continuing saga of Abram, soon to be Abraham, but not quite yet. Genesis 15. By the way, I'll mention again, if you happen to be here without a Bible, there are always Bibles in the back. Feel free to grab one. Okay? And if you need one uh, after we're done to take home with you, that's fine too. They're, they're just there for you to use and take and whatever. So, Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great, or better translated, I'm a shield to you, your very great reward. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir. But one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. God declares, Abram doubts. God promises, Abe probes. God assures, Abram asks. And so it goes, and so it goes. And what I love about this whole chapter in Genesis. This, this is a wonderful passage of Scripture. Wonderfully encouraging, as I think you'll see this morning. But also, it's wonderfully real. Because in this passage, we see the relationship of God and man. God who is always holding out the promises, who is always faithful, who is always there, who is always responding and ready to respond as we cry out. And Abram, who is so real and human. He's about as human as it gets. He keeps asking. He keeps doubting. He keeps saying, but what about? But what about? Lord, I'm not sure about. How can I know that you're going to do what you say you're going to do? How can I really be sure? But check it out, folks. God knows. He understands. He gets it. He gets Abram. He knows people. He sees and understands us so well. He is the God of certainty. And if you get nothing else this morning, would you get that? God is a God of certainty. So often in the world that we live in, as people talk about spiritual things, we, we look to God or a God-like figure, maybe in other religions, and we're not certain, we're not sure, how can we really know, does God really love me? Does God really want to have anything to do with me? How do I really know where I'm headed in my life? And our lives are so uncertain but God is a God of certainty. He's a God of assurance. It is not His intention for us to wander around blindly going, oh, I hope I make it. I hope I'm good enough. I hope it all works out in the end. Until then, I just can't think about those things. God is a God of certainty. And in this passage, He promises Abraham two things. He says, first of all, Abram, you're going to have a great family. You're going to have a massive family. He says, look at the stars. Count them. Amazing. That's going to be the size of your family, Abram. That's huge. Some of you are counting the birds right now. Just cover your heads. We'll be okay. Psalm 127, verse 4 says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. See, we've missed that in our culture. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. We have devalued 
kids in our culture. And you know how we've done it? We've devalued kids in our culture by raising the greed level among our kids. By making them so important by giving them stuff, we've devalued their true value, their presence in our lives. Which again is why kids are welcome at the bridge. Because they're valuable. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. I love this verse, Psalm 127, 5. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. So here's Abram in his mid-80s with his wife Sarai in her mid-70s. And the quiver's empty. There ain't no arrows for the family. And God's saying, I'm going to bless you with a great family. And Abram's going, okay. Were you there when I looked in the mirror this morning? As I said previously, have you seen my wife? She's beautiful. She's 75, man. Those days are over. But he says you're going to have a great family. Your family is going to be comparable to the stars in the heavens. And God also says, Abram, you're going to possess a grand country. A great family and a grand country. From the Nile to the Euphrates, as you will see, God promises the land to Abram and his descendants. That's 300,000 square miles. And for those of you who didn't know this, Israel has only ever held, at its peak, 30,000 square miles. One-tenth of what God promised Abram and his descendants would have. That's just something to put in your mind and stir around. But Psalm 37 verse 9 tells us, Those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Psalm 37.11 says, The humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. And the land that David writes about here is Israel. There is a great value placed on this land. And God says, Abram, you have a great family. And you're going to have a grand country. This is my promise to you. A people to live with and a place to live. Now look at Abram's response. Verse 6 of chapter 15. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abram believed and God said, right on. Because you believe, Abraham, I'm going to give you a credit of righteousness. I am going to view you as righteous even though you're not. You're not acting righteous and and he won't. Back in chapter 16, he nosedives. But God says, I'm going to look at you as righteous anyway. Why? Because you believe. Now understand that. It's important. Abraham does believe the Lord, but just like you and me, now he wants to know for certain. Verse 7. And he said to him, God said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, Abram said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? And Abram keys in on the question of humanity. How do I know? How can I know for sure? How can I get rid of all these doubts that plague me? How can I know, God, that you're going to do what you said you were going to do? So what does God do? He cuts covenant with Abe. He cuts covenant. The word covenant is the Hebrew word berit. And berit literally means cutting. That's what the word covenant means, to cut. Why is that? Read on, Genesis 15, 9. So he said to him, God speaking, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to him, and he cut them in two, and he laid them each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. 
And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Folks, this is how a deadly serious pact was formed in those days. You notice Abram didn't have to ask God why he was supposed to bring the heifer and the goat and the ram and the birds. He, he didn't ask why. He just, God said, bring it, and, and Abram went, oh, okay, okay, I, I see what we're doing here. He goes and he gets them, and he divides them, lays them out, and then Abram spends the rest of the day batting away the buzzards, trying to keep the birds off. And, and by the way, in Scripture, birds tend to be pictures of evil. And so here Abram cuts these things open, gets ready to cut covenant with God, and he's batting away all the birds. When people made a covenant, a pact in those days, if they were really, really serious about it, this is what they did. They'd take an animal, like a heifer, cut in half, lay each side, and the blood up the middle of this pathway, the path of blood, they would walk together. One would start at one side, the other at the other side. They would walk through the blood together in the middle, and they would clasp hands and basically say, if you don't keep your promise... You're dead meat. This is what will happen to you. It was a serious pact. Abram was aware of it. He knew what was going on here. And so all Abram, he's ready to cut covenant with God. Okay, Lord, let's do it. Let's make a pact together. He goes and he gets the animals and brings them all over. But God doesn't show up. So he goes ahead and he cuts the animals, carves them, sets them on either side. But God still doesn't show up. The day is wearing on. And the buzzards noticed a little feast down on the ground. And so they show up, the vultures, the carrion birds, and they start to fly and come at Abram. And he's sitting there batting, 85-year-old man, 85. He's batting away all these buzzards. He's trying to keep it clean. He's running around. And finally, he's pooped. He's just exhausted. He's worn out. In verse 12, it says, When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And we think, oh, wow, a mystical spiritual thing is happening here. No, he's just tired. He's worn out. So he lies down and he begins to go to sleep. Folks, seconds turn to minutes, minutes to hours. The day turns to evening. And finally, Abram is just tuckered out. And he should be because if you notice, he's been up for some 24 to 36 hours straight. Well, how do you know that? Well, when God and Abram are first talking, God tells Abram to go outside and look up and count the stars. Okay? Then, when they decide to make covenant, now it's daytime again. And then evening comes, and Abram begins to fall into a deep sleep. He's been up a long time. This is one big vision that he has from the Lord. So finally, tired old Abram falls asleep, drifts deep into rim, and God shows up. Why? Why does he wait? In fact... This terror comes over Abram, as well it should. When God shows up, it's not like, Oh, hey, God's here. Open the door. Let him in. This is serious business. And so he shows up, and terror overcomes Abram, and it becomes dark. And, and as he begins to wake up and experience the Lord's presence there, God does something amazing. He walks the path of blood alone. Abram doesn't even have the energy to do it himself. Abram doesn't even meet God halfway. This covenant is completely one-sided. Absolutely unconditional. God does it. Abraham doesn't. Why? Well, if you look in verse 13, God says three words that are critical to our understanding of his intentions. Know for certain. Know for certain. God is a God of certainty. 
And I want you to be aware of two things that we can absolutely be certain of today. We're going to come back to the story in just a second, but jump up to verse 1 again of chapter 15. The first thing I want you to be certain of, listen to this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I'm a shield to you, your very great reward. Now listen to me. Abram hears from God seven different times in his story that that we read, at least. We are aware of seven visits by God to Abram. He hears the Lord seven times. And even though he has some faith stumblings along the way, Abram never questions whether or not God spoke to him. He always knows that the Lord has spoken to him. When he was still living in Ur of the Chaldees and God said, Hey, pick up. Leave your house, your family, your father, and your land and everything. And go to the place that I'll show you. He does pick up and go. Now, he falters along the way. Not real faithful, but he heard God. When he finally leaves Haran and goes into the Canaan's land and sets up an altar and begins to worship, he hears God. There's no question that God spoke to him. He knows it. Why is this important? Because, folks, I am absolutely convinced that God speaks to us today. Why do we think, why do we believe that God has stopped speaking? You know, many Jews today believe that. They believe that God has fallen silent. Even the way the Jewish Tanakh, which is the Jewish version of the Old Testament, same Old Testament as ours, but the books are rearranged. They're in a different order. The first five books are right where they should be, but as it winds down in the Jewish Tanakh, it winds down into silence The last book, I believe, if I'm getting this right, is the book of Esther, where God doesn't speak at all. And that's because many Jews today think that after the last of the prophets, God fell silent. And it amazes me in Christianity today. We've had 2,000 years since Jesus. Obviously, the Holy Spirit was very active in that first century church, speaking, leading, showing, guiding, talking to people. But we come along 2,000 years later, advanced technologically, greater in intelligence and we say I don't really think the Lord speaks today like that why? why do we think that? because I've never heard him oh (laughs) that's a different thing I want you to be certain of something I am certain of something and that is that God speaks today let me take you back just a little bit July of 2002 some of you have heard bits and pieces of this story But I want you to know that, again, my history is a history of not really being sure that God audibly speaks to people. That's how I was raised. That His Word speaks to us absolutely. That He's very real and very present. But that He doesn't say, Rick, I have something for you to do. I never really believed that. July of 2002... I was getting a sense, many of you know that the last church I worked at in Anacortes, Fidalgo Community Church. Great church. And I was working there, but getting a sense that this wasn't going to be long term. And I can't explain why. And and I fought it off because, you know, I moved my family up here from California. My kids were settled. My wife was settled. Everything was good. And I just knew the moment I said, honey, I'm not sure that this is what God wants, that Cheryl was just going to freak out. No, I'm not leaving the Northwest. She did say that. I'm not leaving here. Unless God draws me out kicking and screaming, which he may do, but I still won't like it. You know. So July of 2002, we're, we're, we're on vacation, we're in California, and while we were there, I was just, just struggling big time, praying, God, I don't know what to do here, because I, I don't feel, and it was all just feeling, it's all feeling emotion, you know, and that can be deceptive. So as this was all going on, 
Cheryl and I went to Calvary Chapel in Bishop, this tiny little Calvary Chapel, like 35, 40 people there. <laughs> and we sat there kind of halfway back. We didn't introduce ourselves. The pastor got up to teach, and he had no idea who we were, and we were just kind of sitting there listening. And he opened up to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Timothy, where Paul talks to Timothy about elders. And he's going through talking about the elders and the qualifications, and he's reading through, and the pastor is kind of teaching along, and it was good teaching, and it was biblical and solid. And all of a sudden, he stops in the middle of the message, and he looked right at Cheryl and I, who he didn't know, and he said, oh, and by the way, if you're wondering where God is, is leading you in your life, he'll let you know when it's time to go. And Cheryl goes, <laughs> and I was like, what? And then I thought maybe he was going to go off on some kind of point. He didn't. He went right back to talking about elders. And I'm like, well, that's bad preaching. That had nothing to do with the context. Where did that come from? <laughs> and so I'm sitting there, and I was, lit I was stunned. I didn't even hear the rest of the message after that. It's like, he'll let you know when it's time to go. Okay. And I'll tell you guys, we got an incredible peace, Cheryl and I. And we knew, we knew we were going. We didn't know where. We didn't know when. But we knew. I felt at the time like God had spoken. Now, you know, it's coincidence. God doesn't speak to you like that. Okay, fine. Fine. Let's track a little further here. So... We get back to Anacortes, things are going well, and, and we're hanging in, but, but as the months went by, I began to again just start sensing something's going to happen here. What do you mean sensing something's going to happen? I don't know. I, I can't explain it to you all. I, I just knew. I just knew. In the same way that I knew the first Bible study for the bridge was going to be on October 8th before we even had a place to meet. I knew. So this is going along, and I don't want to drag this out too far. Well, maybe I do. But <laughs> February comes, and we get a call from a church in California. And this church and some friends of ours that we had known from previous ministry experiences were there now, and they called, and, and they were looking for a senior pastor to say, hey, would you consider doing this? And we're like, this is it. This is it. This is what God wants. He wants us back in California. Now, I've, I've always had a little California blood in me, so I'm kind of like, that's cool. I can hang out on the beach. That's, that's all right. The beach baptisms, that's right. And Cheryl's going, not California, please. Where in California? Anaheim. Oh. Yeah, from Anacortes to Anaheim. You do the math. It's not pretty. Well, we spent seven months praying about that. And the church dragged its heels and dragged its heels. Yeah, we're supposed to have a search committee next week. And like the next month, yeah, we're supposed to have a search committee next week. And I'm just going, okay, thanks. Talk to you soon. And we waited and waited. We had some friends pray with us during that time, which was really encouraging. Because it was always about, what's the Lord want here? And what each one of these friends who prayed with us kept saying, and it really was starting to tick me off, is maybe God wants you to plant a church. Have you thought about that? And those of you who are privy to this, you know my answer was the same thing all the time. I don't want to plant a church. I don't want to plant. I already planted a church. FCC. We planted it, got it going, it's good. I want to go somewhere established with a building and an office. <laughs> and youth ministry for my teenagers. And children's ministry for my kid. And all and you know, and all this said, I'll just go up and I'll just preach the word and I'll, you know, sit down and everything will just be groovy. That's the way I wanted it. And people kept saying, yeah, but maybe he wants you to plant a church. No, no, he doesn't. I'm sure of it. I know. Well, as God told you, no, I've told me I'm not going to plant a church. <laughs> September 2nd, 2008. 
2003. Andrew Campbell asked me to go fishing. He had been asking me to go for months, and, and you know, and I think he's just trying to make a man out of me, really. Because it was 6 o'clock in the morning, we had to meet to go out on Cornet Bay. We get in his car, and we drove down to the stoplight of Cornet Bay and Deception Pass Road, right there on 20. And as we sat there at the stoplight, I kid you not, as, as audible as it could possibly be, I heard, Rick, would you be willing to plant a church on North Whidbey Island? And I looked over at Andrew, and he's still half asleep, man that he is, you know, <laughs> at the wheel. And I literally, I almost said out loud, was that you? Did you say that, Andrew? But it was, it, it just, it kind of freaked me out. Because now I'm thinking, now I'm just going nuts. I'm out. I'm done. Lock me up. So we went fishing, and all morning long, I'm just thinking about this. And Andrew was, I, I, totally, I found out later, totally aware of this, this, that stuff was going on, and just things. I was, thought I was being subtle. <laughs> yeah. And as this went on, I began to realize something is real here. Saturday of that week, that was on a Tuesday. Saturday of that week, I'm at breakfast with Mark and Susan Harris. And we're just having breakfast over at their house, Cheryl and I, and eating. Halfway through breakfast, Mark just kind of leans forward, as only Mark can, and says, Hey, Rick, i got to ask you a question. Would you be willing to plant a church on North Whidbey? I've already been asked that question, Mark. <laughs> and I just, I, I hadn't even told Cheryl at that point what was going on. Now, all of this brings me to this point. I maintain clearly that God has called me, has asked me to be here. I am absolutely sure that this church exists here in this place because God spoke it into existence. And there are so many other stories you need to hear that I don't have time to tell this morning. Stories about people who have been praying for the last two or three years right here in this area for a church to be planted here. Praying and asking God to bring a church here. And in one point, during one of the prayers, one of the women that was praying said, I don't know why, but I feel like God is going to bring us a new bridge. Now, I didn't know that story until after we had named the church the Bridge Christian Fellowship. One of many, I'm sure, just big coincidences. Does God speak today? Absolutely, I am convinced of it. Well, how do you know? How does anyone know for certain? Let me give you some things really quickly. So that you can know for certain if God is speaking or, or does God speak. I'm convinced He does. He has not left us hanging out there. Some things you may want to jot down if you're taking notes. Number one, His Word confirms it. His Word confirms it. If you want to know for certain if God is speaking, first off, His Word confirms it. Proverbs chapter 30 verse 5 tells us the following. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. And then it adds, Do not add to His words or He will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. When God speaks to us, He never contradicts Himself. God's Word, I believe, is infallible. It is the infallible Word of God. But when He speaks, what He speaks is always going to be in concert with what He has already spoken in His words. So His Word confirms it. Number two, His Spirit confirms it. What do you mean by that? I mean that if you hear from God, if God speaks to you, you'll know it. You'll know it. And I'll be honest, folks, there are people who today do not believe that God spoke to me. Do not believe that God asked me to start this church. And that's their prerogative not to believe it. They weren't there. I was. All I can say is I know. I know beyond the shadow of a doubt. It's not an if or a maybe. It's an I know. Listen to this verse, John 16, 13. Jesus said, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, 
He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak. Oh, that just means the Holy Spirit is going to kind of imply things to you. No, what He hears, He will speak. And He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says. Keep that in the back of your minds. He will glorify me, for He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. If I tell you, Mark, Chandler, after our worship, after our study time this morning, I have something to disclose to you. And afterwards, we go outside and I kind of walk up to Mark and go... And walk off. What is that? When you disclose something, you tell something. You speak. And Jesus said, hey, when the Spirit of Truth comes, He's going to speak to you what He he hears from me. He's going to represent me. And He will disclose things to you. And you may say, man, I want to hear from the Lord. I, I would love to hear from the Lord. But He never talks to me. He always talks to other people. But it's never me. Out of the Gray had a song back in the 90's old Christian husband and wife group and awesome song called He Is Not Silent the chorus of that song goes like this He is not silent He's not whispering He is not silent We are not listening The issue is not God's speech The issue is our hearing It's our focus I'm going to give you some more stuff to help you understand this But if you truly want to desire You really want to hear from God Understand that, by the way, God's speaking is not a novelty act He doesn't do it just to tickle our fancy God, I want to speak to you Loud word from heaven Oh boy, that was cool That's not what it's about It's about His will being done on this earth And in your life But if you want to hear from God Let me give you three quick things to do Sub things here Get into his word Pray and listen So simple Yeah Get into his word Pray and listen Because God speaks through his word Touches you with his word Helps you understand his word It's in times of prayer and listening That God may or may not speak to you You know what? He may not speak to you He may not audibly say or do something. When he does, it's often at times where it is needed. I needed to hear from God. I wouldn't be here speaking to you this morning if I hadn't. I needed to hear that voice. Well, his word confirms it. His spirit confirms it. Number three, his people confirm it. God's people confirm it. Proverbs 12.15 tells us the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man is he who listens to counsel. God has set up in this human family counsel. Guidance that does come from other people. Okay, but how do I know if the counsel I'm getting from other people is from God? What if it's not? Simple. Test it by the word. Pray it through. And then listen to me. Look for the spiritual fruit in the life of the person speaking to you. That's critical. What do you mean? Well, if someone comes to you and says, Hey, God's told me something, Marianne, and I have to share it with you. And Marianne sees in my life, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If these things are evident in my life as I bring a message from the Lord to Marianne, guess what? Good chance it's from God. Because that's the fruit of the Spirit. However, if I come to Marianne and say, Look, i got something to tell you and you need to listen to me. And I come with enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, or envying, which is also listed in Galatians 5. Those things are not of the Spirit. That is not the fruit of the Spirit. 
and you use the fruit of the Spirit, you can, God has given us this, to understand, to know where people are coming from. And to know where we're coming from. Because if I have envy and jealousy and strife and on and on in my life, I'm not living by the Spirit. And I can hardly hope to hear from God. His Word confirms it. His Spirit confirms it. His people confirmed it. Or confirm it. And number four, His fruit confirms it. His fruit confirms it. John 15:4. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Gang, you cannot produce spiritual fruit without the, the Spirit in your life. Can't be done. If there is spiritual fruit growing out from this church, then we can be aware, we can know the Spirit is here. And I'm not just talking in bodies, numbers of people. I'm talking in, in hearts and ways that people are acting. Again, back to the list of the fruit of the Spirit. If His fruit is produced, then His fruit is confirmation that He has spoken. His fruit is confirmation that you are walking the path that God has called you to walk. Number five, His blessing confirms it. What's the difference between blessing and fruit? Well, blessing has to do not with fruit, but with His favor. Let me ask you a question. Do you feel like the favor of God is on this place? His blessing confirms that He has spoken. Psalm 90, verse 16. Psalm 90, 16. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Has the Lord confirmed the work of your hands by His favor in your life? Number six, and last one. And then I just have one more thing to tell you, so hang on. Number six, his son confirms it. I had five things up until yesterday on that list, and I ran across this verse. 1 John 4.1 Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Don't believe every spirit. You may hear things that are spoken to you spiritually that are not of God. Don't believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By the way, as I stand up here and speak to you and teach you week in and week out, test me, please. Because many false prophets have come in and gone out. And I have no intention of being a false prophet, but man, you keep me accountable to his word. It's important. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false spirits have gone out into the world. How do I test the spirits? Verse 2 of 1 John 4. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. I didn't say every spirit that believes in Jesus. I said every spirit that confesses Jesus. Impressions, spiritual words that come from the Father, if they promote, if they exalt, if they elevate Jesus, good chance it's from the Lord. But if it denies Jesus in what you're doing, whether as a church or as an individual, it is not from God. Because even every prophecy of Scripture, Revelation 19.10 tells us, every prophecy is there to indicate Jesus. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Again, Revelation 19.10. Because this whole book is about Him. Does the word you receive hold up Jesus as God in the flesh? There's a whole entire religion out there. 
And this is not my judgment. This is just the truth. There's a whole religion that is based on a man hearing from an angel who did not confess Jesus as Lord. And that's Mormonism. Joseph Smith heard from the angel Mac Maroney. Sorry. He hears from the angel Moroni, and what does Moroni tell him? Well, he tells them a whole new religion, gives them a whole new thing, and in that, Jesus is not exalted, is not elevated as God come in the flesh. And so John nails it. Right there, pulls the rug out from under an entire belief system that has deceived countless thousands. His son confirms it. All right, back to Abram, back to Genesis 15. One last thing I want you to see. I absolutely am convinced that God speaks today and that these are the things that confirm that he has spoken and does speak. But Abram never questions whether or not he heard from God. That wasn't an issue for Abraham. What was an issue wasn't the hearing, it was the follow-through. That's where he struggled, and that's where most of us struggle. It's in the follow-through. So verse 13, 12 and 13, Abraham's sound asleep. God shows up. Abe is terrified. Down in verse 17, in the black darkness, check this out. Look at verse 17. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite, and the Termites, and on and on. God promises this to Abram. But look at how he does. Look at how he does. Don't miss this. It's very dark. And a smoking oven and a flaming torch passed between these pieces on a walkway of blood. Folks, this is a picture of the crucifixion of Jesus. Listen closely. It was very dark. What happened when Jesus hung on the cross? Everything went black. The sun went out that day for three hours, pitch darkness. And a smoking oven, what is that? The smoking oven is always in Scripture or in some translations, furnace. Smoking oven or furnace, look it up. It's an interesting study. It always indicates judgment. Judgment. A flaming torch or lamp always indicates the light of the world. Listen to Revelation 21 verse 23. In talking about the new Jerusalem, John's describing it and he says, The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God himself has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. A burning lamp. And so you've got this walkway of blood as this smoking furnace, this picture of judgment in all this darkness begins to pass through this walkway of blood. And at the same time, this flaming torch, this light passes through this pathway of blood. And all of this, speaking of Jesus, the path of blood itself is a foreshadowing of the ultimate walk of blood that Jesus took alone, called today the Via Dolorosa. When Jesus was condemned to die and carried his cross through the streets of Jerusalem all the way, creating a pathway of blood directly to the cross. And it was there on the cross that all of his blood was spent for you and I. That route to the cross became drenched with Jesus' blood. And listen to this. As this smoking oven and flaming torch passed along this pathway of blood between the pieces, 
When Abram completely woke, what did he find? He found a barbecue. He discovered a sacrifice, a burnt offering. And as we've talked about before, every offering in Scripture points to the cross. The ultimate offering of Jesus. The ultimate sacrifice. The significance is staggering. Don't miss this. For it was at Calvary that Jesus doused the smoking furnace of judgment for anyone who believes. The judgment no matter no, no longer has power. It was at Calvary that the flaming torch, the light of the world, was lifted up for all people to see. It was on the road to Calvary, that very path of blood, that Jesus chose to walk alone, just like God walked alone between the pieces before Abraham could even try to meet him. Jesus walked the path of blood alone. Why? Because we couldn't even meet him halfway. If someone tells you in Christianity that God does his part, but you got to do yours, they're lying. Because you can't. You don't have it in you. None of us have it in us to get to the cross. To die for our own sins. Although we should die for our own sins. It's what Jesus did for us. And it was at Calvary, folks, that the sacrifice, the offering of Jesus produced the only blood pure enough to save me from my sins. We can't walk that path of blood. We are so much like Abram. We attempt to bring our lives as offerings before the Lord. Okay, I got the heifer. I got the ram. I got the goat. I got the bird. Here we go. I got my offering. My life, Lord. Take it. Use it. I'm yours. Aren't I great? And then, when we begin to try and offer it up, dividing these things, cutting our lives open before the Lord, saying, look, here's our, here's our lives. Then when evil comes, we try to bat it away. We try to get the buzzards off. No, stay off of my offering. This is my offering to God. No, no, I don't want to be tempted. And we work and we work and we work. And all we do is end up exhausted like Abram. And folks, that very behavior is a denial of God's grace. Abraham learned it. We've got to learn it. My behavior does not redeem me. It's a matter of my response to God's amazing grace. See, because when you talk about this, what people say is, oh... So I don't have to do anything. Cool. All I have to do is say, I believe. I'm done. No. If that's where you're at, you've completely missed the point. 2 Corinthians 5.14 tells us the love of Christ controls us. Literally holds us together. Jesus' love holds me together. What is it that allows me to even produce an ounce of righteousness in my life? Jesus' blood. Jesus' love. His love compels me. Not my behavior, not my attitude, not my power. I am not compelled by my ability. But I am compelled to live for Jesus and to seek godly behavior because of Him. Because He loved me, because He died for me before I even said yes. I look at that and I say, what else could I ever want to do with my life? When He went first... Paul says, listen, having concluded that Christ's love controls us, that one died for all, therefore all died, he died for all, listen, so that they who live might no longer live to themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That is the motivation for trying to live a righteous life. Not hoping that by living a righteous life you'll save yourself but because He saved you already. 
And this verse is absolutely stunning. And in light of seeing the Passion on Wednesday night, I want you to keep this verse in your head. If you go see the movie, implant this verse in your head, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Every believer, I believe, should have this memorized. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so I sing, what language can I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend? For this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end, oh, make me thine forever. And should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to thee. Let's pray. Jesus, the message of the gospel is sprinkled throughout the word. We see it yet again in the story of Abraham. And Father, I'm just beginning in my life to recognize that the reason it's so all over the place in your word is because we need it so desperately. As we pray together this morning, if you have never accepted this gift of Jesus, this, this death, this sacrifice, Please understand that He died because He loves you. That as much as we may want to ignore our sin in our lives, it's there and we know it. But Jesus wants to take it away. He wants to remove it completely. And and you can start today to walk the path of faith because Jesus chose to walk the path of blood. And, And if you want to make that commitment, And even if you have a hundred times before, pray this in your heart to the Father after me. Dear Jesus, I believe that you came to this world as God in the flesh. And I believe that you died and that you rose again. And I today confess to you my sin and I ask for forgiveness. I pray that you will become the Lord of my life and that you will lead me from this day forward. And I pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The cross is serious business, gang. It's it's God's ultimate answer to all of our problems. We don't spend enough time on the cross, looking at the cross, thinking about the cross. But it is the center point of our salvation. Mel Gibson was interviewed on Primetime, many of you saw it, um, and was asked, why so bloody? Why does this movie have to be so violent? And he said, because I wanted it to be shocking. He said, because the message of Jesus on the cross is shocking. That's the deal. And we're not going to shy away from it here in this place. We can't afford to shy away from it because that's what saves us. The message of the cross. Not anything that we do. I don't have anything else to say this morning. <laughs> Except I appreciate you all very much for being here. Well, a couple of, yeah, one, one final thing. You through. Tonight at 7 o'clock, right across the way in the Gilmore's living room, we're going to hang out. And if you are a teenager, parent of a teenager, or have interest being involved with kind of getting some youth ministry stuff going at the bridge, show up. 7 o'clock tonight, right over there. Um, make sure you sign up if you want to see the passion. 
We won't be here Wednesday night. So as I said last Wednesday night, if you show up Wednesday night, have a nice time. We'll see you next next time. Have a great day. Thanks for being here.